Hey, this is Nathan Dawkin from Fantrax HQ, as well as the Nasty Cast and Fantrax Dynasty Baseball Podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 118, Trading Places, Movie Review. Chris McBrien, along with caveman Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. You'll find us on Twitter at Amaron underscore DM for, for Derek and at C McBrien for me. And PopGoesYourWorld.com is our website. And if you get a chance, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. Derek, what's new in pop culture for you this week? Hey, Chris, uh, I have had uh, only a little bit of time compared to my normal oodles of time to uh, absorb pop culture. Uh, the, the two things I want to talk about real quick, I had a chance to watch Jack Ryan season two on Amazon. Uh, are you familiar with this intellectual uh, property? Yeah, I think so. Is it like Tom Clancy? It's ba- yeah, character? it's based on the books. Uh, is it the guy from the based- office? Is it who's in uh, it? Now? Yes. Yeah, yes, it is. So Tom Clancy wrote a whole See, series of books featuring Jack Ryan. They did a bunch of movies. Uh, Harrison Ford played Jack Ryan. Um, right. Uh, ben Affleck played Jack Ryan. I think even Chris Pine, who's Captain Kirk now, played Jack Ryan in one of them. Um, oh, and Alec Baldwin in Hunt for Red October. So the franchise, the these characters have been around in pop culture for a while. Uh, and yeah, the guy who was the main guy in The Office is now the lead in this Amazon TV series. Season one uh, came and went. Season two just dropped. I never watched season one, largely because I don't really like the guy from The Office who plays Jack Ryan. I mean, I'm, I don't dislike him, but I just I don't really care for him, and I never watch The Office. Uh, and season one seemed to be more about, like, turmoil in the Middle East, which, uh, you know, not really my bag. Uh, season two is more about, um, it takes place in Venezuela, and it's more about political unrest and and mining and, and oil rights uh, in South America. So it, it seemed a little uh, more up my alley of things I might be interested in, and it, it was pretty good. Um, the performances were good. There was uh, a lot of actors that were in it that I was like, oh, I totally know who that is. So it was, uh, it was, it wasn't great, but it was good. I would say probably like maybe a C plus, like I was glad I watched it, but yeah. I certainly don't think I need to watch it again. Um, and then the other thing I watched on rewatch was, so just sorry, that, before you get into yeah. that, I want to talk about this Jack Ryan for a second, because okay, go for I have a question for you because I was never a big Tom Clancy guy. I tried to read, this is, I'm going back years now, like probably 25 years ago. I tried to read, um, the hunt for red October and I didn't like it. I, I found it difficult to get through. It was very technical and I just, I didn't really enjoy it. That being said, I liked the movie, but I read a book that Tom Clancy wrote uh, called Without Remorse, I think it was called. It was a big, thick book. And I really enjoyed it. And I'm trying to remember was if that was Jack Ryan. Do you know? No, I, I've, just like you, I tried. My dad actually loved uh, Clancy and owned a whole bunch of his books. So I remember when I was uh, at university. He was really thought, popular oh, well, for a while there, wasn't he? I'll read he? these. I, I started, yeah, I, I picked up Patriot Games and tried to get into that. And like you, I just, I couldn't get into it. And I'm a big reader, but I just, it wasn't really... Hitting, hitting the right check marks for me. So I, I couldn't get into it. I read about halfway through. I put it down. I, I just couldn't get into the books. The movies I enjoyed enough. Again, not my favorites, but enough people, uh, performers in them that I enjoyed uh, watching that I felt, well, I'll give this a go. But I, like I've seen Hunt for Red October. I've seen Patriot Games. I've seen Claire and Present Danger. I think I've seen them all once and I'm good with that. So mm-hmm. that's why I never jumped on to season one of Jack Ryan. But season two was pretty good. Okay. And so what else did you do? We had something else 
Uh, so I rewatched one of my favorite movies, The Social Network. Have you seen this? this is the the Facebook movie? Yeah. So this is definitely a millennial thing, but uh, I actually did watch it when it came out, and uh, it was pretty good. I thought it was a pretty good movie. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. There, Yancey so, would be proud of me. Yes, we. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts in the last couple of weeks where, because we're coming to the end of 2019, you're starting to get year-end best lists, and now we're getting decade-end best lists, although technically the decade doesn't end until the end of 2020. But for purposes of lists, people right. are going 2010 to 2019, make right. a list. And one of my uh, one of my favorite podcasts, they just did a – there was the three people contributing. They all did their top ten favorite best movies of the decade. And all three of them unanimously agreed that The Social Network is the best movie of the last 10 years, which hmm. was funny because I just finished watching this. And then the next day I listened to their podcast. So because I had just seen it, I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm totally on board with that decision. But I don't know. I'm going to have to give that one a little more thought. It was good, but I don't know if it was necessarily the best movie. But I'd have trouble making that top if we did a top five list of the best movies of the last decade that might actually make an interesting show because i don't even know if i've seen five movies from the last decade <laughs> yeah that that sounds like the right yeah, answer for yeah us. yeah so you know that's me what can i say uh what about you any uh, any pop culture happenings in your world are you uh busy being a dad and a full-time professor as uh, exam season and term paper season is coming in definitely have lots of marking to do as a professor but as a dad um so you're not a, you don't have children but let me let me tell you something for those people that listen to this show and actually do have kids, one thing that we like to do, caveman, us parents, is sometimes you like to torture your kids. And I know that sounds awful, but, you know, kids put, can put you through a lot of torture. So sometimes it's nice to get them back. So tonight, uh, it was just funny. Just I have to share this story. So tonight we were playing a game of Sorry. So you've heard of this. It's like a board game. Yeah. Right? Classic yeah, board yeah, game. Classic board game. You right? really uh, be uh, aggressive and... Uh ruthless with your friends and children exactly. and siblings exactly yeah. so we're playing a game of sorry and one of the, the objects of the game is you want to land on someone else's marker because it sends them back to their home like it sends them back to their home place and so every time that we did this i would sing bring him home from les mis and my kids just started like they were almost crying, like, stop, daddy, no more, stop. And I'm like, I just thought this was great. I can torture them. And then they would, like, I would land on, on my wife's thing. And then I'd be like, bring him home. And then they're like, daddy, stop, stop. And every single time someone would land on it, I would do it. He's like the sun I might have known. And they're like, stop. <laughs> just, I don't know. It's really, it's kind of thing. If you're a parent, you understand. Sometimes it's just great. Just great, great to torture your kids. And so that's what I was doing all night. I was singing this this song from Les Mis, Bring Him Home, just to torture my kids. And then another thing, which I'm going to bring up later, having to do with a dad joke. And I just remind me later as we get, because it has to do with the movie that we're reviewing tonight. Um, okay. But I have another thing that I've just been torturing my, my oldest son with all week from this movie. So I'm going to try and remember to get into that. But that's what I've been doing. So you got a chance to watch some Jack Ryan and do stuff. And I tortured my kids. That's the way it goes. So what are we going to do? Just another week in, uh, in our lives. That's me. Yep. Okay. On that note, let's hit it. Calm Blue Ocean, Calm Blue Ocean, Calm Blue Ocean. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. He's Smokey and the Bandit oh. shirt for you. <laughs> <laughs> so, I loved it. I thought it was great. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad. Boof from Teen Wolf. Hot as a pistol. Wow. I know. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> I'm a big Dungeons and Dragons nerd. It's a shock that you never got more girls in high school. <laughs> Calm Blue Ocean. Calm Blue Ocean. <laughs> Calm blue ocean. I don't know. That's a lot to unpack, Chris. Okay, give me a second here. <laughs> 
Okay, so this week it came over to me to nominate a film, and of course I went back to the 80s, as I am wont to do, and I went back to uh, 1983, picked a movie that I actually am surprised we haven't got to on this podcast yet, because I know I say this almost every time I pick a movie, but it's one of my favorite movies. It was Trading Places from 1983. You seemed like last week when I mentioned it that you were pretty uh, happy with my pick that I was going to do that. So do you want to get us started off a little bit about the film um, and then maybe come back to me and I can explain why I picked this movie? Sure. Uh, So, yeah, you're right. I I had seen this movie before. I liked this movie a lot. I'm a big fan of Eddie Murphy. And I I was thinking about this earlier today. I I think behind Beverly Hills Cop 1 and 2, this would be my third favorite Eddie Murphy movie of all time. Uh, I, I think it probably makes most people's top three. Possibly even their top one, um, and this is this is Eddie Murphy coming into his own, right? It's it's they made this movie before Forty Eight Hours was released, but he obviously shot Forty Eight Hours before he shot this one. So mm-hmm. you have this uh, young up and coming actor who's already a TV star on Saturday Night Live, has these two huge hits, goes on to do uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Like this is this is the rise of Eddie. Uh, this is Eddie Murphy being Eddie Murphy. He's amazing. You've got a great director. You've got a great script. You've got great co stars. Uh, there, there's really a lot to like about this movie. Uh, and I'm, su- I'd be surprised if you, uh, were able to find too many people that disliked it other than just to say, I don't like it Murphy, which, Hey, if you don't, that's, that's fine. But, uh, but I think it's a pretty strong movie all around. So the, for those who maybe haven't seen it before, which, or haven't seen it in a while, it's it, the idea is, a uh, a trade. Well, the movie's called trading places. Think of it like sort of the Prince and the Pauper idea. You have Dan Aykroyd's character who is wealthy from a good family, has a strong education, a really good job. You have Eddie Murphy's character who is, uh, you know, down, uh, low life con man, no, no prospects, criminal record, bad upbringing, all the rest of that, uh, you know, total stereotypes on both ends. And the uh, two elderly gentlemen that own the uh, the the exchange uh, stock exchange that they work for the the firm they work for decide to make a bet nature versus nurture. If you were to take someone with uh, the the wrong pedigree but put them in the right circumstance, would they thrive? And if you took someone with great pedigree and put them in a terrible circumstance, would they uh, would they bounce back? And so that's literally what happens. You have the the two characters literally trade places. Dan Aykroyd, basically, he goes from being rich to, to being poor. They they besmirch his name. They get him fired. They they press charges against him for uh, uh, made up charges, uh, hoping that he will embrace a life of crime to prove the point. And they give Eddie Murphy's character everything he could ever want. They give him a house. They give him a butler. They give him a wardrobe. They give him an expense account. They teach him how to trade stocks, and they make him the executive in a company. And it doesn't take very long for. Uh, things to happen exactly as these two guys expect that it will. Well, one of them, right? The two guys have a bet. One thing's it'll work and the other won't. Uh, and then, of course, hilarity ensues along the way. Yeah, I'm going to sort of stop it from there. Why don't you uh, Why don't you jump in? Chris, tell us what you like about it. And uh, I'll start. Okay, I'll start out by saying why I picked this movie. And the reason why I wanted to go back and watch this movie is because I believe The Trading Places is the forgotten 80s movie. Because I think when you ask people, and if you think, you reflect back on the best movies of the 1980s, particularly the comedies, I think a lot of people forget this one. And it's too bad, because it's probably one of the best, if not the best, comedy from the 80s. And one of the main things that I like about this movie, and the reason why I wanted to to nominate it and go back and look at it, you know, like 35 years later, is they do not make movies like this anymore. They don't. The they I, don't. You're they, absolutely right. The idea of the R-rated comedy, it's a dead art form. And that actually brings something to mind I want to share. Because the movie rating system itself, 
has undergone some some changes over the years that I've been going to the movies. I'm showing my age. You know, I, everyone knows I'm old. I remember adult entertainment. Okay, so there was like G, PG, adult entertainment, and restricted. And then, the, and you could get into adult entertainment movies. Like there was, they didn't, they weren't very strict, you know, back in those days. And then now these, came, Chris, let me interrupt. Now these are the Canadian ratings. Yeah, this is, I should make this yeah. clear. This so is the, we're in Canada. It, yeah. My understanding with the adult accompaniment was if you were, no, this was Under adult entertainment. 14. This was it was called adult entertainment. Right, it was the AA AA was the rating adult entertainment. But I believe this the subtext of it was. If you were uh, if you were under fourteen, you had to be accompanied by an adult. Not exactly, as opposed be, to restricted, which was yeah. restricted to people 18. under the age of eighteen. Yep, this is a little different. So this was adult entertainment. Then they came up with the G P G adult accompaniment. Oh, that's when I and R, and that's when you would would know. Yeah. And and then You're not at, as old as you, Chris. Yeah, I know. And then, but when they came up with adult accompaniment, you had you could get into the movie if you were under eighteen, but you had to have an adult with you. And then I remember they also added PG-13. And they did that because of the uh, Indiana Jones and the Indiana Jones and the Temple yeah. Because it was like too intense for younger viewers. I think I was, well, I was 11 when I went to see Raiders of the Lost Ark. And honestly, that was a little bit too intense. I was also a bit of a scaredy cat when it came to scary movies when I was a kid. But anyway, um, in regard to the movie rating system. So this movie came out in 1983. I was 13 years old. And, and this was when adult accompaniment had come out. So again, you could only get in if you had an adult with you. But I lived in a small town and they didn't really enforce the rules at the theater all that much. I, hell, I, dude, I remember I went to see the movie Bolero with Bo Derek when I was 14. Like, and nobody even asked Lucky. me. Yeah, I, I remember oh, it was so easy to get in the movies back then. And like, like I mean, that movie Bolero, like, I, I think if I remember correctly, I think Olivia Dabo was like nude in it and she was like young. She was, but anyway, like I, I should not have gotten into that movie. But anyway, like I say, really easy to get the movies back then in my, in my town. So I went to see Trading Places. I'm 13 years old without an adult to accompany me. I, if I remember correctly, I think the guy at the, at the box office said, well, you got to have to have an adult. I was like, oh yeah, my uncle's just right up there. Oh, okay, go in. Like it was just, it was lax. But um, should I have seen this movie as a 13 year old? No. You know, but like I say, it was a bit of a different time then too. Um, but like I say, it was just different times. And we've said that before in this podcast, different kind of movie. But another thing that you touched base on uh, was Eddie Murphy. I'd like to flip that over for a second. And I want to talk about Dan Aykroyd for a second, because at the time that this movie came out, Dan Aykroyd was very closely associated with Sean Belushi. They yes. were they were on the original Saturday Night Live cast together. Uh, they were in 1941 and the Blues Brothers and Neighbors together. So when Belushi died in March of 1981, this had a big effect on Aykroyd. And not just personally, because, I mean, it was his best friend, but professionally. And in early 1983, Dan Aykroyd came out with the first movie on his own after Belushi died. And it was called Dr. Detroit. I don't, I don't, you know it, right? So you remember that yep. movie? Now, I liked that movie. but I'll, I haven't seen it in 25 years. Yeah, I just remember been, the yeah. Doctor. Ooh, ooh, Doctor Detroit. Detroit. Yep. And, That's and, all I remember. And Smooth Walker. Oh, it was so good. Uh, but So I liked it. But like a lot of people didn't. It was like panned by the critics. It bombed at the box office. So it, it came out in, in early in 1983. Dr. Detroit did. So I think there was a lot of thought you know amongst you know people the audiences hollywood types that dan Aykroyd couldn't be successful without belushi 
And and let's be honest, Dan Aykroyd is not your typical leading man. You know, he's not exactly the, that sort of traditional type of actor that can carry a film by himself. So just when things are looking like bleak for this guy and for his career, out comes Trading Places. And let me tell you, if you're the type of actor that sort of does better with an on-screen partner, you couldn't do much better than to partner up with Eddie Murphy in 1983, like you mentioned. Trading Places... Well, think, think of what he did after this. He went from this, and then he had Bill Murray in uh, Ghostbusters in 1984. Like, you're yep. absolutely right. He he plays better as a duo, and uh, yeah, like he had two of the best in back-to-back years. And that, the, After being with Belushi and the Blues Brothers. Like, exactly. And really he, hit the partner he needed, Yeah, he needed something to spark a change, and Trading Places was exactly what he needed. And it Because it was a movie that allowed him to work with another actor, so he didn't have to carry the movie by himself. And boy, did it work. And the thing was, he, he got to work with Landis again, you know, because they had so much success with the Blues Brothers. So for all those reasons, that's why I picked it. Um, you want to talk about some of the elements of the movie itself? I'd like to talk about John Landis for a second. Do you Are you a John Landis fan by any chance? Well, certainly not to the extent that you are. I mean, I, I am familiar with a lot of his work. I've seen a lot of his work. I've enjoyed a lot of his work. But if you said right now, name as many movies from him as you can, go. I would probably be stuck to name more than two or three off the top of my head. But as you start to go on the list, it's going to be like, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, I've seen that. Um, so uh, why don't you take it away and uh, throw I, a few questions to me as we go? Sure. I loved all of Landis's work right from Kentucky Fried Movie, you know, through the, you know, Animal House and through the Blues Brothers and things right up until really for me coming to America. And I think I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast or not before. You have. To, to me, coming to America was the last of the sort of classic comedies. It was the last, and not just because it came out in 89, like or right at the end of the 80s, I think. It was the last of those kind of movies. After that, they just stopped making them. And they just, it, it went in a different direction because the 90s was all about, we've talked about this before, it was all about independent films. And then the movie making changed, right? And then now you've got all the CGI stuff. Well, and yeah, I mean, you also got to think of like what was going on geopolitically, right? The fall of the Berlin Wall at the end right. of 1989 was huge, Huge change worldwide in a lot of things, and it, it changed pop culture. Um, and like you said, also the technology changed as well as as we're coming into the the computer age and and, and technology is improving. The way you make movies changes, and and as you mentioned before, the the independent you have camcorders, you have you have people learning, self teaching uh, them teaching themselves to um, to shoot their own movies at home without going to formal film schools it, it it changes the medium as as the world around them and the technology and the tools change yep and well like, like i say going back to uh to landis one of the things i've always liked about him it, there's, there's there's many and we'll get into the but he loves to put elements of his movies into his other movies like yes like, so he he did it in twilight zone the movie like the scene that he directed with vic morrow when uh, vic morrow's in vietnam uh, there, the, the scene opens up and there's a bunch of American soldiers walking through the swamp in Vietnam. And one of them says, we shouldn't have killed Captain Niedermeyer back there. And that was a nod to Animal House because at the end of Animal House, right before the credits roll, they show the characters are like one by one. They show them on the screen, like of what happens to them in the future. 
Remember, there's like Senator and yep. this is John Blutarski. And then yep. Niedermeyer, he's the guy that yelled, um, the, the, is that a pledge pin on your uniform? Mark Metcalf played him. And so so he was Captain Niedermeyer. And, and it said at the very end of the movie, killed in Vietnam by his own troops. So that he brings that into his next movie. And he did it again with the Dukes in Coming to America, if you remember. Right. I'm sure you do. I do. You yep. know, the, the scene where Eddie Murphy's character is walking along and hands a bag of money to, you know, this homeless person. And it ends up being... You know, um, Randolph. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, you know, they're back. We're back, Mortimer. And then also another one is Frank Oz, because he's used him in several of his movies. He was in the yep. Blues Brothers and and in, and he was also in Spies Like As Us. As a police officer, too. Yes. He, <laughs> he basically recreated his role in this movie. He just did the same shtick. Like where yep. he was going through uh, the, the, the in, he went through Belushi's material uh, yeah. goods at the beginning of Blues Brothers. <laughs> one and, prophylactic, soiled. Yep, exactly. <laughs> one un, one unused, one soiled. And, and in this, he did the same thing. You know, he, he goes yep. through all of his stuff and that's when he's like, one cellophane bag. Hmm, this is PCP angel dust. And there's that whole scene. Yeah. But he you was also. See what this stuff does to kids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but he was in Spies <laughs> Like Us too. Remember, he was the. Um, he was the instructor oh, he that was, was the like, teacher. yeah, he was yeah. like proctoring that foreign service board exam with yeah. Austin and Emmett where they were, where they were cheating. Presses the button and the, yeah, the, yeah. the cameras all come out. So, yeah. so yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Landis fan. Like uh, he, he was, he was, oh man, he was good. And, and the movie actually did pretty well at the box office. It cost $15 million to make and it made over 90 million domestically. Um, it was actually fourth for the year in 83 return of the Jedi being number one. Um, but so it did really well, although, although I will say falling out, I'm just looking at the list from 1983, the movies that, uh, that did well at the box office trading places finished ahead of war games and also Octopussy. Um, just falling outside of the top 10 was uh, jaws 3d. Unfortunately didn't quite make it, but Yentl didn't make it either. It was like 18th, but anyway, um, another thing that I like about this, and Landis, too, is this is not it's to me, it's more than just a comedy. And you kind of touch base on this. It's it's a social satire and it's a social commentary. Absolutely. You know, and the the whole idea, like you mentioned, it, it's it's sort of based on that classic fish out of water archetype, you know, combined with you mentioned like Mark Twain's uh, Prince of the Popper. Yeah. Right. And the, the idea of the social experiment of nature versus nature. So, like I mentioned, they just don't make movies like this anymore. And. I don't mean that just in regard to the fact that they don't make R-rated comedies anymore. It's more than that. Because I always felt that John Landis sort of created a new genre of film. And I always referred to it as the epic comedy. Because before he came along, comedies were just that. They were just comedies, right? Usually like kind of yeah. low budget, no frills storytelling. You know, and they kind of relied on kind of relatively low concept, you know, and situational humor. And... John Landis, to me, anyway, he seemed to like sort of kick things up a notch. And his comedies are almost bigger than life. If you think of Animal House, and I mean, a lot of it had to do with Elmer Bernstein's score for that movie, because the music was almost like orchestral in nature for Animal House. And, and I think it confused a lot of people at the time, right? Especially the studio types. Like yeah. they didn't know what to make of it. And then, but it worked. And then when Landis went on to make the Blues Brothers, it was like this over the top bigger than life movie there's these massive car chases there's like destruction there's musical numbers into it and then here with trading places if you remember the movie opens up with mozart's the marriage of figaro which is one yeah. of the greatest pieces of classical music ever composed so to me the whole thing just kind of feels epic like i don't know how else to explain it but no i i think that's uh i think that's an accurate 
Uh, that's an accurate way to describe it. I agree. I agree with everything you just said. I think that's 100 percent correct. I, I don't know. I really like John Lennon. But so uh, there's a lot of things happening in this movie. Like I say, uh, you know, it's it's more than just a comedy. And and one of the, the themes that I, I would really like to touch base on now that it's 35 years later, looking back on this movie is the whole race thing, because the whole plot really involving the Dukes is just mired in racism. Oh, right. yeah. There, there are, as we often uh, touch on when we review older movies, there are a lot of things in this movie that are of the day, many of which do not age well. Um, some things you sort of just hand wave and go, oh, that that's how things were. But there are there are a few as I was watching it this week when I went, oh, I, I don't remember that. But I'm <laughs> right. kind of glad I don't because that is so wrong for so many reasons. The if you even just take the the initial interaction between Winthorpe and Valen, Valentine, you know, Winthorpe just assumes he's getting robbed of the payroll. Like when, when Murphy, yeah. he clearly has no intentions of he just bumps into the guy. He tries to give him the case back. And then it isn't until the cops assume that he's guilty, too. And they come after him that Murphy just instinctively runs away. Like, like, yeah. And then if you think of the scene when the um, the Dukes try to get Murphy to come into the limousine. And they're like, whiskey, you know, and, yeah, yeah, so like, and, and, yeah. and even the dialogue that Murphy gets for his character in that scene, you know, he's yeah. like, oh, you're like Randy Jackson from the Jackson five. And the guy's like, he's oh, like, I, sure. I, yeah, I suppose uh, yeah. so. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, Morte, what it is, my man. He slaps his hand. Like the whole yeah. interaction just smacks of racial stereotypes. Right. And then they get Murphy back to their, you know, their, their, their brownstone. Right. And, they, and he goes in the jacuzzi and then right. he's in there and he starts singing. And Randolph yeah. Duke says, they're a very musical people, aren't they? Yeah. Like, like the wow. whole thing just, yeah, it just smacks of racism. And then when they, they the, when the Dukes discuss the bet and they're talking about that nature versus nurture. And and he's like, well, you know, they, they, they refer to, to Murphy's character. He's like, oh, he's probably been stealing since he could crawl. Right. And, and even that scene later when they're in the bathroom stall, when Murphy overhears them talking, you know, just, I think even the fact that, they have Murphy's character sneaking in the bathroom to smoke a joint. Yeah. Like it just comes across as stereotypical. Right. And then the Dukes make very clear, like they, they would never have a black man run their company. And Mortimer even drops the N word to punctuate the point. Right. Yeah. And, and Randolph agrees with them. Like the the whole thing, I understand it's, it's designed to make the Dukes into the really bad guys. And it's very effective at that. But for me watching it now, it was more than that. Like, I think there's a lot of racial stereotypes at play in the movie. And like you said, it's definitely reflective of the time in which it was made. Um, And obviously one of the best things about this podcast is, you know, it allows us to kind of go back and look at these movies, you know, through the lens of today. But the one thing that I just kept thinking about as I'm watching this movie, and I've made this point in the past with Yancey, and and I'm going to make it again here, is how much has really changed? Like, I'm a huge optimist, you know, I'm, you know me, I'm really open-minded and sort of very liberal in my belief system, but I'm also realistic enough to realize that the world hasn't gotten all that much better in the last 35 years. And to be honest, judging with what I'm seeing happening lately, you could argue that it's actually regressed. It's actually gotten worse over the past couple of years. Yeah, I mean, without getting too political, yeah. um, I, I think you're, I think you definitely uh, can make a strong argument for that. Uh, one of the things I want to uh, sort of touch on that you brought up was um, 
uh, Don Amici's character. Well, Don Amici, the actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, in preparation for this movie, as I often do when we uh, when we do these, I read through the trivia on the IMDb, and it talked about how towards the end of the movie, uh, he has to uh, use the F word when they're like, uh, you know, he's like, uh, your brother's having a heart attack. And he's like, yep. oh, F him. Yep. Uh, apparently, uh, again, you, you can never know if the internet is accurately and true, but it said, Due to his religious, his strong religious beliefs, he didn't want to use curse words, and apparently in his real life he didn't. And so when they wanted him to say the F word on screen as a part of this scene in this character, there was initial resistance. And when talked into it, he said, okay, I will do it once and only once, so you better get it on camera because I am not doing it again. I'm only going to say the word one time because I am a professional. I will do it because it's in the script. That was sort of the gist of it. So he's got a hard time because of his religious beliefs saying the F word, but he has no problems using the N word. I know. And again, I think that it is definitely of its time. But to your point, I think that there's a lot of people today that might be the same way. It's like I will, you know, that would feel comfortable. They shouldn't, but they do uh, saying, you know, one thing, but not the other. And it's like, it seems so hypocritical. It's like if, if you've got a list of words you won't say, why are these words on it and these words not? It, it just seemed – it was – I mean I don't know. I don't know if I'm – I'm pulling against you. I'm nope. rambling and I don't know if I'm making my oh, point. I agree with you 100 percent. I yeah. don't know what – you know. and again, we're not here to be political or to, to challenge people's belief systems. But what belief system do you have where you're like, no, you know what? I, I'm just too principled to use the F word, but I'm fine with the N word. Like what yeah. the racism is, the is okay, with but you. swears yeah. or not. Jeez, like, I don't. Yeah. Again, it just me. But and and that's what I like about this podcast. We can look back on this movie from thirty five years ago, um, and look at it through a different lens. And and I certainly am because I mean I liked this movie a lot, and I watched it many many yeah. times. I had it on I VHS. I've you know seen it a bazillion times. It's been years since I've seen it, and to take a look at it now, like I realize. Like just first of all, how good of a film it is, how I believe it's it holds up as a film. And I think you really hit it too, is it's got a great script. A great script. So um it really, really holds up. But there's but there's, you know, certain elements of it that just kinda make you you know, just kinda wonder. And and like I say, I think a lot of it was you know, intentional to make the Dukes, you know, unlikable, but uh, but some of it too was was just kind of very stereotypical. You know, and, and and racial stereotypes are not the only stereotypes that show up in this movie either. Because if you think about it, you know, the rich people are seen as sort of sophisticated, and poor people are supposed to be beneath them. But in fact, you know, and the movie does play it up that the truly good people in this movie are the non-rich people. Yeah. Like if you think about it, Ophelia, the prostitute, yeah, the she, yeah, 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 she she takes him in, right? Yeah. She's the only one that's nice to him. And Valentine is actually smart and savvy and has really great business instincts and Ophelia too she's a really smart businesswoman remember she invests all her money in like securities she's got all this cash and like I say both of them are good and decent people and they're willing to help other people out whereas the Dukes and Winthorpe's fiance and and his quote-unquote friends they're all just selfish jerks right (laughs) so well um, I think of it this way Chris if let's use you and I as an example mm -hmm. you fall on some hard times and you're you're charged with a crime and for whatever reason, your family is un- unable or unwilling to help you out and you come to my door, I'm not going to turn you away simply because you've been charged with a crime, even if I think you did it. 
you're my friend. I'm going to try and help you uh, in, in any way that I think I can. And I think that the movie does a very good job of demonstrating just how shallow the friendships are uh, with the people that are represented as being the upper class. It's like they have this shared pedigree. They've gone to school together. They work together. They all are it seems to be sort of in the same socioeconomic bracket where they can enjoy the same privileges that you would have from from having or coming from money. But it doesn't seem like there is even that strong emotional connection. It just seems so shallow. And um, and, and I think that's part of the point of the movie is to, to, to make that comment. And just like you said, it shows mm. that those that don't necessarily have money have to rely on other things to to you know, to get about, go about their day. You need to rely on your friends. You need to do what's right. You need to have this strong moral compass. You know, you look at the hooker. Yeah. What she's doing professionally is illegal, but she talks about how, you know, I've done this job. I've got a few more years left and then I've invested well and I'm going to retire and I'm going to live my life. And it's like, she's got a plan and she's doing it for a reason. And it's, um, you know, again, it's, I think it's a, a very deliberate commentary on the class system. So you've got in the movie, they, they make a point of, t- Pointing out the differences between the races, the classes, the uh, you know the the um, those with and without money, it's uh, it's this very uh, diametrically opposed script where you have all these uh, comparable things that continue to be flipped upside down uh, through the course of the film, and in many cases, it's done for laughs, but it still makes a good point, and probably by playing it for laughs, it almost makes a stronger point because you. You laugh at the absurdity of the extreme, but by by doing that, it really hits home what the point is. Absolutely. I agree. And and another theme uh, that we've kind of touched base on, too, is the whole bet, right? Like the whole nature versus yeah. nurture thing. And, you know, obviously, you know, they play it, you know, for for, com- for comedic value, too, because it's, it's like the usual amount. You know, which you expect to be this huge yeah. sum because they're mega rich. But I love the fact that they get uh, Clarence Beaks. You know, by the way, the absolutely masterful Paul Gleason in this role, mm-hmm. you know, to, to obviously like he is, he's the one that slips the bills in the Winthorpe's jackets, you know, so they can yeah. frame them and yeah, yeah, yeah. all that kind of thing. But, oh, oh, man, he was fantastic in this. I uh, read somewhere that um, G. Gordon Liddy was actually um, pegged to play that part and he was all ready to play the part. I mean, he was not an actor, obviously. I mean, you know, he broke into Watergate, but um he was going to play the part. And then when he got to the, the got to the script where um, later in the movie where the gorilla, remember they dress him up in the gorilla suit, oh, they leave him yeah, in there yeah, and, yeah. and the, and the, the male gorilla uh, violates him. We'll say um, when he read that, he says, I'm not doing that. And they said, well, it's in the script. They say, I'm not doing it. So he came out and they brought Paul Gleason. And there's a scene where Paul Gleason is actually reading will by G Gordon Liddy. I think it's a little oh. tip to the, him for that. But, uh, very interesting. A <laughs> um, couple scenes in the movie I wanted to touch base uh, on. Yeah, sure. There's a few I want to touch on too. Go Good. ahead and start. I'll start with one. Um, when they're, when they're, I just, I laugh at this every time I watch this movie. And like I say, it's been 25 years probably since I've seen it. When they're haggling at the pawn shop with Bo Diddley. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, and he plays the guy at the pawn shop. And he has the best voice ever ever i swear so winthorpe is trying to sell him his watch and he's like burn my fingers man yeah (laughs) Yeah. are you implying that this watch is stolen (laughs) he's like i'll give you 50 bucks for it and he's like it's handcrafted in switzerland it's water resistant to three atmospheres 
Like it tells time simultaneously in like Beverly Hills, London, Paris, Rome, and Stad. In Philadelphia, it's worth 50 bucks. Yeah. I just, I love that. I'll take it. Uh, how much for the gun? There's just something about gun. that whole yeah. scene. I just laugh from beginning to end. I just, oh, I love that scene. Uh, what's a scene that, that stands so, out for you? I've got a couple. Uh, let me tell you. So in my mind, so I watched this movie this week. I hadn't seen it in a long time. I remembered lots of the broad strokes of this movie because there's a lot of memorable scenes and a lot of memorable dialogue. One of the things that I didn't realize until this viewing was that the movie takes place primarily in Philadelphia yeah. because the the end of it takes place at the New York Stock Exchange. I just assumed it took place in New York. So when I started watching it and it's showing all these scenes of the of well, what I learned later was Philadelphia. Yeah, it's got the Liberty Bell. Sort of, and, yep, yep. Well, I'm watching it and sort of through my mind, I'm thinking, wow, this is you know a real time capsule of of what urban America was like in the early 1980s. You could see, you know, the cabs, the buses, the, the what people were wearing, just the way the, the various store signs looked. Like, it, it was a real time capsule. Um, and it wasn't until I saw the statue of Rocky that I'm like, well, that's definitely not in New York. <laughs> right. And then I sort of was paying closer attention. I'm like, oh, it must be Philly. And then it shows the Pencil, I think it was Pennsylvania Railroad. And I was like, oh, okay, well, definitely Philly then. And, uh, yeah, again, you just assume or I just assumed that like so many other movies, it took place in New York. So that was uh, that was one thing that caught my attention right away. Um, so I want to talk about a problematic – well, not so much a problematic scene, but sure. something that really jumped out at me. Okay. So towards the end of the movie, they get on the Amtrak and they do the whole switcheroo with the briefcase. Yeah. And all the characters are in various disguises. Yes. Oh, God. Which surprised me a little bit because yeah. I was thinking to myself, well, if if – it was it was a uh, Beaks that had the report, right? Yes. But he he never seen. He knew who Winthorpe was, but did he know the other character? Like I didn't understand where they were all dressed up. It's like he wouldn't know who they were. Yes. He? So yes, he knew Ophelia. Remember, he is the one that paid well, Ophelia at the beginning of the movie to go and to kiss Winthorpe in front of his fiance. But she had the red wig on, and she was you know. But, looked but like still, Walker. but still, she 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 didn't want to be recognized by him. Well, and I don't the, think her disguise really changed her appearance very much. I, well, that's to, part of the comedy. His attention on her test rather than on her face. Sure. Um, and because and, he was working for the Dukes and because yeah. Eddie Murphy's character, Valentine, was t- had taken over their the business for the Dukes, you know, he would be worried about being recognized. And because um, he obviously would know Winthorpe and yeah, would Winthorpe, probably know I Winthorpe's. Knew, uh, yeah, Butler as well. Yeah, so they they were all kind of at risk of, of being recognized so, yeah, that, by him. That was sort of my first thing. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, so you want to come into these disguises. And I like the, the way they sort of the, – the script is written that it's this party train on New Year's Eve where everyone's – although it's not Halloween, it's like Halloween where everyone's right. dressed up in costumes. So, okay, that's great. Dress up in a costume. But then It was you a have, New Year's – it was like a New Year's party. New Year's were, party. Yeah, yeah. And they were so all dressed up. Have, uh, but then I, I was thinking, I'm like – are Eddie Murphy's character and the Butler's character supposed to be in costume? Because it didn't seem like they were. It seemed like they were just people that they have were playing those characters. Uniforms. I think, yeah, yeah. Which so again, speaking to this, the racial stereotypes, especially Eddie Murphy, like <laughs> that just seemed a little bit too much of the nail on the head with that one. Oh, Miguel um, but, from Cameroon. Oh yes, the Haley Selassie Pavilion. Oh yes, yeah, you play for laughs. And Ackroyd shows up as in. in in blackface as yeah. a Jamaican. And I was like, oh, dude, I'm yeah. like, really? And and this is a real sign of the times that in 1983, you can do this and people laugh. Yep. And, you know, I'm sure not every single person was laughing. I'm sure there were certainly people who were offended by it, but it, it just, 
the 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 masses, the white masses of North America were like, this is funny. Let's put this in the movie. And, yep. and you know, you you absolutely couldn't do that today. I mean, look at the Canadian prime minister. They he did that at a Halloween party a decade ago. And during the election, this thing comes out and it's this scandal like, oh, my God, it's so that that jumped out at me. I did not remember that at all all but i i it made me cringe just to watch it mm-hmm. it was it was very uh, awkward to to go back and see and i mean again sign of the times at the time i i can't believe that anyone making that movie felt there was anything wrong with it they probably just felt that hey this is going to be a funny scene let's do it and it was so over the top you could see it wasn't right. done out of racial insensitivity no. but that's no excuse um yeah, so it's there's a, there's that, a line that I really like in that scene when he says when he's talking about the beef jerky. He's like beef jerky time, beef jerky. Yeah. You want some beef <laughs> yeah. jerky? He's like, no, there's plenty, you know. I don't know why, just the way he delivers that line. <laughs> there's plenty, you know. I said that to my son just this week. I was like, uh, you want this? He's like, no. I said, oh, there's plenty, you know. And he's like, what are you talking about, Daddy? I'm yeah. like, ah, oh, I watched this movie for the podcast. Never mind. <laughs> um, which which kind of brings me into uh, this point because I mentioned earlier about how I was torturing my kids. Yes, and yes. and so so I said so because I just watched this movie this week. So I said to my son, he's ten years old. You know my son. You met him. So I said, wait, to my, you didn't let him watch this with you? You no. didn't want to see Jamie Lee Curtis in all her glory? No, no, no. That'll be another scene we'll talk about in a minute. Okay. Um, but so so I said to my to my son, I said, oh, I, I said. I said, I said to my son, I said, you know what I want to do? <clears throat> I got to go and I'm going to go get some paint. I'm going to get red paint. He's like, oh, what are you going to do with the red paint, daddy? I said, I'm going to paint the truck because we have like a, an SUV, right? Like a Toyota. And he goes, what are you going to, what are you going to paint it? You're going to paint the whole truck? I said, no, 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 no. I'm not going to paint the whole thing. I'm going to paint a big red S on the side of it. And then I'm going to paint a big red S on the other side of the truck. And then I'm going to paint a big red S on the top. And he's like, why would you do that? I said, so when I dive down the street, people will say, look at that S car go. And, and it's from this movie, right? There's like, there's a scene where they do that. Yeah. And he's like, daddy, he's like, daddy, that's the worst dad joke I've ever heard in my life. Never say it again. He's like, oh my <laughs> God. He's like, I'm so embarrassed. That's the worst dad joke ever. So then even tonight at dinner, we, we were getting, we we're just finished up dinner. I said, oh. I said, oh, I said, oh, son, I, I, I got to go. And he's like, what do you got? I go, I, I got to go to the store. And he's like, why? I said, I got to go buy red paint for the truck. He's like, daddy, stop, stop. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, that led right into the game when I started singing, bring him home. So it was great. Um, so I wanted to get into the scene. You mentioned Jamie Lee Curtis's scene. Yes. Because, you know, of course. No 80s R-rated comedy. comedy. Yeah, would be complete. You need to show some moves. Yeah, without that obligatory nude scene, right? And it really sort of seemed to be a standard part of all these movies back then. But the thing with Jamie Lee Curtis, even at the time, it was like a little surprising that she did this scene because it's, it's not like she was like a struggling actress who needed the work. She was well established because of her roles in um, in Halloween and Prom Night and Terror Train, yeah. and also not only that, like I mean, she's basically Hollywood royalty. I mean, her mom was yeah. Janet Lee from Psycho, and her dad was Tony Curtis. So the fact that she would sort of come out, you know, with already having an established career and do a nude scene, I think it was a little shocking to some people. You know, don't you agree? Um, well, again, I, I can't, I can't speak to how, how it was at the time, but watching it now, it just like so many of these other movies, 
I expected a nude scene. I knew the nude scene was in there. But watching it now, it's like the nudity added nothing to the scene. You could have had that scene be every bit as effective as it was because she she basically covers herself up and then turns around and delivers the dialogue. You could have easily recut that scene in such a way that you never actually see the front. And then when she does turn around, she's covered up and, mm-hmm. and the scene would not have been any different. I don't think it would have been any uh, uh, less powerful. I you know, like so many of these like so many of these nude scenes we talk about in some of these older movies, it's simply there. Uh, to be a gratuitous nude scene to get young boys, young men into the theater. Well, not even necessarily young men into the theater. Just another reason to to sell a ticket. Come on in, see Jamie Lee Curtis take her shirt off. Which, you know, in today's today's lens, that's it's. I think maybe like, maybe no that's for it. But maybe if that's I what was, made sorry, this one. Sorry, that, maybe that's what made this one different, though. Maybe that's what made why it, this one stood out. Because unlike all the other 80s movies that just had the gratuitous scene in there, like you said, this one was a little bit more shocking because it was J.B. Lee Curtis. Maybe that was it. Yeah, I don't know. I I mean, hey, uh, she she had a, a she had a phenomenal body. And if she wanted to show it off and assuming that there was there wasn't pressure to do it, she chose to do that. Uh, hey, power to her. I, I've heard. Women say uh, uh, women performers say that, well, you know, I, I chose to do this because it, it was empowering. And I'd like to think that that was the reason she did it. Uh, I don't know. Um, but if it was, it great. Cha- it cha- I would say it changed her career because she was known as sort of the screen queen up until then with these horror movies. But after this, then she uh, did a movie with Travolta called Perfect. And it was about somebody that had a perfect body. So so I think she was kind of then pegged as being like, you know, this person with this unbelievable body. And then also in True Lies. I was going to say, True yeah. Lies, yeah. I think came directly from Although there's from this. no nudity in that, no, but it is. But, but and, it came so there's from an example. This. There's an example of how you can take uh, an, a performer who is very physically attractive and, and wants to, again, I assume, wanted to take this role to do this scene uh, perform it in the way she did. It's very erotic, very sexy, but there was no nudity. And I think if that movie had been made 10 years earlier, she would have had no top on. The scene would have been shot probably exactly the same way. They would have just said, take the top off. But mid 90s, you make this movie and it's not necessary. And it, it you know, she has, she's not wearing a lot of clothes. She's, you know, still you know, very, very a lot of, uh, she has a lot of skin showing. But um, I think it speaks to the fact that y- you don't, have to have the female performer be naked to make the scene work. The scene can work. Yeah. And yeah. and in True Lies, it certainly did. No, that's a good point. Uh, the last scene that I want to talk about is the last scene in the, in the movie. It's a stock exchange. And there's always sort of existed some confusion about exactly what happens here. It's, it's, it's basically one of the most frenzied and quite frankly, I would say realistic climaxes, you know, in just about any movie I've ever seen. But it's also a scene that confuses the hell out of a lot of people. And K-Ben, I understand... You're a bit of a stock market expert, and you can maybe help shed some light on exactly what happens in this part of the movie. Would you like to uh, try to uh, tackle this sure. for us? So uh, not so much a stock market expert as much as I- I'm a big gambler. And, and yes. who are we kidding? The stock market is essentially gambling. It's yep. just a different kind of gambling. It sure is. So put in its most simple way. Uh, so before I do any of this, mm-hmm. I may not do the best job of explaining this. I may confuse people more than they're already confused. I would encourage anyone who really just has no idea what happened and after my uh, uh, rant here still is confused to go to the IMDb page for trading places in the trivia section. Somebody has written an excellent description, scene by scene sort of of how 
this end plays out and how it worked and why it worked and the ups and the downs. And I've read it a couple of times. It's it's a little bit long for a single piece of trivia, but it is it is quite detailed. And whoever did this clearly wrote it and and rewrote it a few times to make sure that it was right. So if you're not sure, go to the IMDb, but I'll try and explain it. So essentially, uh, Dan Aykroyd's character even says it. And you've heard this mantra before. Buy low, sell high. Mm-hmm. That that's the that's the objective when it comes to uh, any transaction, right? Buy low, sell high. You're going to make money, and in a nutshell, that's what they do. Except they do it in the reverse order, where they actually sell high before they actually have anything to sell. Right. And then later in the movie, when the prices start to to plummet, they buy because they know. Uh, basically, what's happened is the movie, uh, the scene takes place uh, on or after New Year. I think it's January second. Uh, if I remember, or it's between Christmas and New Year's. Right. No, it's ju- it's, ju- it's just in the New Year. Yeah. Right. Because they did the New Year's Eve train right. thing. So, exactly. So in January, they say that in April, we will be selling orange juice at a set price. I think it was 142 And at the time, we don't yet know if there will be a lot of orange juice available or a little bit of orange juice available. And so the Dukes have one idea of how it's going to work because they've seen what we learn is a false report. And uh, Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd actually know they, they, it's, it's, it's in total insider trading. They would totally go to jail for this if they were ever caught. But they have the inside scoop. They actually know. It's like betting on a fixed sports event, right? If you already know the outcome, of course you're going to bet on the right side of this deal. And that's basically what they're doing. Is, that was the whole is, scene on the train, right? Clarence Beeks had the crop absolutely. report, you know, yeah, which, which, so, which was going to say that it was going to be a normal crop. Good crop. Yeah. So the Dukes were assuming I, I, I got to think the Dukes, the, the report the Dukes had said that the crop would be ruined and there would not be a lot of orange juice available come April. Right. So their instruction to their guy was in January, buy as much as you can, because in April there won't be a lot available. And the it's price is going to be high. If exactly. there's only a little bit to be right. had, we can sell it for as much as we want. So even though it might look like we're buying it at a high price now, we're going to be able to sell it at an even higher price three months from now. And of course, these guys realize that that's not going to be the case. So they set a price, 142. They said, in 142, we're going to sell these at this price, and even though they don't at the time have any. And they start taking taking the the the, the deals. And then later on in the movie, when the the stock starts to plummet after the actual report comes out and says, no, there will be just as much available in April as there is today. There's not going to be any sort of a shortage. Uh, there's going to be plenty, so don't overpay for it. So everyone starts selling because they're like, "Well, crap! If it's going to be cheap, I don't want to be holding it. If it's a dollar forty-two, they start selling, 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 selling." And again, supply and demand. With so many people selling, the price plummets. And when it hits rock bottom, the two heroes say, "Okay, in April, we're going to need to have some orange juice. Now that it's cheap, let's buy some." So they do that: buy, sell, uh, buy low, sell high. But they do it in the reverse order, which in the stock mm-hmm. market you can totally do. However, uh, and this is pointed out in the trivia, not really so much pointed out in the movie. In order for you to um, make these trades, in order for you to say, I'm going to sell you product X at this price in a future date, you are required to pay a certain small percentage of the whatever quantities you say you're going to have mm-hmm. um, at the time, which is why you see Ophelia and the butler give them their life savings yeah, at the beginning. That's how like, they, that's how they like, finance well, it. Yeah. Yeah. If it's like, well, why would they need the money up front if they don't have to sell it until April? Um, that's why it's just, that's the way the stock market works. Nothing, mm-hmm. nothing is free. The stock market itself takes their cut. The brokers take their cut. Um, so yeah, they, they acquire uh, future sales of the orange juice. They say in April, we're going to sell this much at this price. 
and everybody jumps on board. And then when they find out there there is not going to be any sort of shortage of supply, people freak out and they just try and get rid of what they got. So yeah, that's what ends up. And I think it ends at I can't remember what the final stock twenty nine cents. If I if I can if I can kind of add to what you've said, you know, like because you've really put it together well. But it's yeah, the idea is is that you know the the floor starts to see the Dukes buy, so they think something's up. Right. The, the, says, the Dukes, Dukes know. know something. Yeah, they know they're trying to corner the market. So everybody thinks it's going to go sky high, like, you know, over two bucks or something like that. So then that's when um, uh, uh, Winthorpe and Valentine come in and they say, we'll sell in April for 142. And everyone's like, yeah, because we think it's going to be way over two. We'll do it. We'll, 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 we'll buy from you in April at 142. No problem. It's called short selling on the floor. Yeah. Right. But the key yeah. thing is, is you got to wait for the right time. Because if the price goes too high, they're going to owe the floor a lot of money, right? Yeah, it's that it's that small percentage. But if you're going to potentially owe hundreds, thousands, or tens of thousands of units at a dollar forty-two, mm-hmm. even ten percent of that price is going to be enormous. Oh and yeah, they're going to owe. One the thing floor that I think the movie um, sort of glosses over, rightly so, but I think people misunderstand is the the events at the end take place at the starting bell at I believe it's nine o'clock or nine thirty. Mm-hmm. I think it's nine o'clock starting bell. Then an hour later, the stock report comes out. So it goes from 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock or it goes from 9.30 to 10.30. But the exchange don't close until much later in the day, 3 right. o'clock, 4 o'clock, somewhere right. in that ballpark. So what wasn't apparent to me until uh, you know many viewings later is we don't see that they continue to buy, 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 and then sell, 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 sell over the course of like six hours. Like time passes that we don't actually see. It's not right. just, oh, the stock report comes out, you've got 20 minutes to sell this, which is sort of what the movie implies, that it's like, oh, the reports came out, you've got a very short window to move these. Uh, I think I think the implication here is when the bell goes and the, and the trading stops, that's the end of business day. Like there has been a tremendous mm-hmm. amount of activity buying and selling. And this is old school before computers, right? right. So this is physical paper chits where you're writing down the 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 – stockbroker's number and mm-hmm. the amounts and who they represent and you see them all with the hand signals like i'm buying this many and yep. at this so yeah that's that's one thing that's just a small detail that mm-hmm. as i've started to understand a little bit more about how this sort of big thing comes together this big climax at the end is that there is a significant passage of time that is sort mm-hmm. of glossed over and that's why they got to wait for the right time too because not only do they need yes. to wait for the right time um before the price goes too high but they also need to leave enough time to book those orders because, yes. like you said, they got to do it manually, right? And then they, yes. obviously, they obviously, you know, everybody wants to. Oh man, yeah, we'll buy from you for a dollar forty-two in April. Here we are. Here we are. We buy it. And then, of course, like you said, the the crop report comes out, and oh no, it's fine. So then, uh oh, the price is not going to go sky high. We need to sell, right? And then right. they just start buying it. And the price yep. goes down. So the key is to buy it low, like you said. So they had to buy it for like twenty-nine cents. So yeah. they're they're basically buying for twenty nine cents now, but they're selling it in April at a dollar forty two. So they're rich, yeah. big time rich, and, 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 and the Dukes are poor. But not only do they have to make sure the Dukes are poor, like they squeeze the guy out from even selling just to sort of doubly screw him over. Yeah, they don't even yeah. buy them back from the Dukes, right? Yeah, and yeah, then exactly. like you said, they use Ophelia's and Coleman's money too. I think to to finance yes. the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, it's. Uh, 
when I was younger watching that, I sort of understood the whole you're you're buying low, selling high. But the idea that they do it in reverse order always confused me. It wasn't mm-hmm. until many years later when I started – like I work for a bank. Uh, not that I deal with the money. I work in communications. But that I started to get an understanding of, oh, OK, this is what's happening. Because then at the end, the, the exchange guy comes over to the, to the Dukes and says, OK, margin call. And basically what he's saying is we need a percentage of all of these uh, orange juice shares that you said you were going to buy. Oh, yeah. Uh, you owe the floor. Yeah. You've got you to pay us money. Yep. Yeah. And they're like, well, we don't have that much money. Uh, and that's right. like, well, we're going to seize your assets, yep. sell your seats on the exchange and uh, you're done. Yep. Uh, there's going to be a lawsuit here. And, yep. uh, and they're, they're literally uh, they're broke. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is what does Valentine say earlier? He's like, the best way to get back at rich people is to turn them into poor people. And they, they reveal <laughs> yeah. they they have that again, this parallel scene where he's like, I bet him that, uh, you know, we couldn't get rich and put you all in the poorhouse at the same time. I lost. Here's the payout. A dollar. It's a dollar. And, and, and that's to rub what, it in like we know. And that's one of the best parts, to, you know, for the end, because then you realize that the 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 title trading places is not just. You know, Winthorpe and Valentine trading places, but really at the end of the movie, they trade places with the Dukes, right? So that's very gratifying for an audience to experience that, needless to say. But also the title, uh, to me, also also means trading places like it's the floor of the exchange. This is where this is a a place we're trading. So, I mean, what a great title. So good. It's descriptive. It's everything. I don't know. Great movie. Out of 10, what would you give it? Uh, probably an eight, maybe yep. eight, eight and a half, probably definitely eight. no, no lower than eight, but I could probably be talked into giving it an eight and a half. I would definitely go eight and a half as well. Yeah. It sort so of loses a tiny bit for me just because of some of the, the, yep. the, the passage time of time. The, yeah. The I unnecessary get it. nudity, the, the racial insensitivity, mm-hmm. but looking at it as sort of a, a, a piece of art of its time. Uh, it's got so many other good things going for it. Yeah, I think a solid eight, no question. From an entertainment point of view, it is definitely right up there. And like I said, for me, I believe it's one of the forgotten movies of the 80s. And when you come back and you watch it again, you realize just how good it is. But that's our thought. Anyway, on that note, let's have some fun with Caveman. All right, Derek, since I nominated the film, it's over to you. So I think I should probably... Um open up a beer and enjoy myself <laughs> here and sit back and relax. So that's what I will do. I don't know if that's going to help you or hurt you here this time, bud. I'll do my best. What have you got for me this week? Okay, so I decided to, uh, you know, as we often do with our trivia se- segment here, I decided to try and change it up just a little bit. Okay. I- I've learned over the years that asking you trivia about the movie that you love and that you nominate is sort of a, a futile effort. You're going to know all the trivia points. In fact, a lot of the trivia points that I might have asked you, you brought up during the course of our discussion. Yancey as you used to often say that, used yeah. to with Yancey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, we always try and skew the trivia just a little to the left or the little to the right, just to keep it off center and keep it interesting. But I will say you did answer some of the questions I have in this trivia during the course of our uh, dialogue. So this m- section might be a little easier for you than I would. Yes. I, I didn't think it would be overly difficult, but I think it, you might find it even a little bit easier because I think we've already touched on some of the answers. So oh, yes, I like that. Uh, Trading Places came out. Remind me again, what year did this movie 1983, come out? 1983, my friend. Okay, 1983 was a pretty good year for movies. And I know you're a big 80s guy, a big 80s movies guy. I am. And so I thought, you know what? Let's take a look at movies from 1983. Oh, gosh. Okay. Just 1983. And there were a lot of great movies. There were a lot of crappy movies, but there were a lot of great <laughs> movies in 83. Yeah, I think there probably was. Yeah, good movies. A lot of movies that have stood the test of time. A lot of movies people go, oh, I've seen that. Or you say, hey, would you be interested in what? Yeah, for sure. No problem. So I've got a list of 40 or 50 movies here from 1983. Oh, God. Okay. I have very brief one-sentence descriptions of these movies. I'm going to give you 
60 seconds. And I'm going to need you to be the timekeeper on this one. Actually, no, I'll be the timekeeper. You be the timekeeper. Okay. Yep. Our, uh, you know, mobile phones, the wonder of the world here. I've got a, a timer right in my pocket. So let me uh, get a timer going here. Uh, we're all ready for that. I'm going to give you 60 seconds. I'm going to read you the one-sentence description of a movie. Okay. If you know it, shout it out. If you don't know it, just say pass, and I'll go on to the next one. Deal. We will not come back to anything you missed simply because I have way more movies on my list than we would ever need to go back to. Okay. And, uh, it, and we'll see it. how many I get in 60 seconds. Is that the idea? Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any guesses? How many? Keep in mind, it's going to take me a few seconds to read each question. But how many? Just before we get started, let, if we were betting, if we were betting on this, what do you? What would you put the over and under seconds, at? What do you think six, is sort of that middle ground for where you're going to land? Ten. Ten. Okay. So let's say I'm going to set the line at ten and a half. Okay. If we were betting, would you go over ten and a half or under ten and a half to get oh, that? This is going to be hard, and you got to read. I'll go under ten. Okay. So Chris is putting his money on under ten. Uh, I, I think that's probably a pretty accurate line. I'm going to take the over just to be on the other side of that. And in your favor, there are a couple of descriptions that I have deliberately tried to make more challenging because to give you the real description from the IMDb, it would be so obvious. Right. right. Uh, but for the most part, I tried to keep them pretty pretty much in line with what – like my objective here is not to stump you. I want you to get as many as you can, but okay. I will tell you there are a few quote-unquote – trick questions in here which we will come back to afterwards okay if you don't get so i'm just going to read it you yell out the answer i'll say correct or not we'll move on just say pass if you don't know and i'll go on to the next one and these are in no particular order i'll tell you you know how i did i put the list of 50 movies together i went into excel i created a random number generator and i said resort the movies so all right there's no rhyme or reason as to the order of these don't let that factor into it so are you ready okay 60 seconds on the clock Go. A test pilot flies an experimental police helicopter. Uh, Blue Thunder. Correct. A boy buys a strange car with an evil mind of its own. Christine. Correct. A timid co timid college professor poses a, as a flamboyant pimp. Uh, I don't know. Pass. Pass. A Pittsburgh woman working two jobs as a welder and an exotic dancer wants to go to ballet school. Flash dance. Correct. A 35-foot shark becomes trapped in a SeaWorld theme park. Jaws 3D. Correct. A young man's terrorist friends destroy a government installation while he focuses on reconciliation with his father. Pass. A Chicago teenager opens a brothel in his suburban home. Risky business. Correct. A determined Cuban immigrant takes over a drug cartel and succumbs to greed. Uh, Scarface. Correct. Two stoners pose as Dolly Parton and Burt Reynolds when they visit Amsterdam. Pass. Canada's most famous hosers get a job at a local oh, brewery. Strange brew. Correct. Richard Pryor creates a synthetic material that turns the greatest hero in the world evil. Superman 3. Correct. Seven former, seven former college friends gather uh, the big for show. a weekend reunion. Correct. And we're over time. Sorry, I wasn't watching oh. my talks. Oh, so how did I get big show. So in a minute and 10 seconds, let's see. Okay, I'll read down the list. I think you got most of them. Blue Thunder, you got. Christine, you got. This one, I'm surprised you didn't get because we talked about it. A timid college professor becomes a flamboyant pimp is Dr. Detroit. Oh, Jesus. Ah, oh, yes, right, right, right. Flashdance, oh. you got. Jaws, you got. Okay, this was a trick question, which is why I made sure it was in there early. A young man's terrorist friends destroy a government installation while he focuses on reconcil reconciliation with his estranged father. Um, Don't know. It was the top grossing movie of the year. Return of the Jedi? A young man a young man's terrorist friends destroy a government installation oh, while he focuses geez. on reconciliation with his estranged father. Oh, that's crazy. Yep. 
<laughs> I knew that one would stomp you. Yeah, Sorry, it did. <laughs> risky business. Did you get risky business? Yes, Teenager I got that one. Yep. Broth, okay, yeah, Scarface, you got Cheech and Chong still smoking. Two stoners oh, poses. Dolly Parton, Birdman. Still smoking. Came out Strange Brew, oh, you got geez. Superman three, you got the Big Chill, you got. So Ooh. let me see how many is that here. That's uh, we did go a little over the clock on that one, but we are there was there was twelve. I think you missed two, so you got ten right on the line. Hey, line. so we got one. So I I, I got the under the line, Chris. Oh nice. man, oh man, right on. I tell you, oh my gosh, that was really hard, man. Especially when you get when the clock's ticking like that. Oh man, the pressure is on. Uh, I tell you what we'll do is we'll come back next week with a top five list because you know we've done two movies now in a row, so that's sort of next up on our list. We'll come back and do that. I'll, I will. I will throw this out there if you enjoy listening to the podcast, and if you have any suggestions for topics or movies or especially top five lists that you'd like to, you know see us do here on the show reach out to us on twitter at amaron underscore dm is for derek at c mcbrian uh you can reach me popcoesyourworld.com you can email us on there but until next week when we do our top five list this is chris mcbrian for derek myers saying thanks for listening to pop goes your world the pop culture podcast for the generations thanks for listening to pop goes your world you can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 